Uh, last week we started a new series called United with Christ. And Pastor Ron last Sunday talked about the mystery. Go ahead, you guys can go ahead and start. Pastor Ron last week talked about um, the mystery of us being united with Christ. Um, remember, we talk, he, he, the emphasis was our life was hidden with Jesus. Uh, for those in the first service, remember, Pastor Ron had Jerry Harvey out there and he hid behind uh, Jerry. And uh, he's saying before the great white throne of judgment, before God, uh, when God looks at us, our life is hidden with Christ. So when he sees the righteousness, he doesn't see our righteousness. He sees the righteousness of Jesus. And for every single one of us, when we come before the throne of God, that's what you want. You don't want God to see our righteousness. You want, us, you want God to see Jesus' righteousness. That's so important for our lives to be hidden with Christ. This week, we're going to switch it up a little bit. We're going to continue this series called United with Christ. But we're going to focus on uh, Christ living in us. So last week, was our lives was hidden with Christ. This week, we want to talk about what does it mean for Christ to be in us or in you. And I'll be super honest. When Pastor Ron first called me up and said, hey, guess what? This is your topic for the week, Christ in you. I was not the most excited about this topic. Um, for me, the term Christ in you is very Christianese. You guys ever heard of that phrase before? Uh, it's a phrase that we use often, at least I use often, without really thinking about what it means. Uh, for me, Christ in you or Christ in me a lot of times become like a, a, a catchy motivational, motivational phrase. As in, uh, I can't run in a mile, but I can do it because Christ is in me. Or, hey, Christ is in you, you can score that touchdown. It just becomes this catchy phrase that we use when we need an extra boost. But as I delve into the, 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 the context and the emotions and the feelings of those when he first introduced this idea, I start to realize, man, this message is absolutely for me. I need Christ in me, understanding the urgency and the magnitude of Christ in me more than ever. So I want to bring you guys into this, into, into my research and my study and, and, and the things that the Lord has downloaded into my heart. I want to start around John chapter 13. At this point in the life of Jesus, he knew that his time with his disciple was nearing to an end. So he's starting to prep them for his departure. He tells them this, dear children, John chapter 13 verse 33. I will be with you only a little longer. And as I told the Jewish leaders, you will search for me, but you can't come now where I'm going. Some of you ask, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus replied, you can't go with me now, but you will follow me later. Jump to John chapter 14. He says, don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God and also trust in me. And finally, verse 18, he says, no, I will not abandon you as orphans. I will come to you. Soon the world will no longer see me, but you will see me. Since I live, you also will live. So basically he's telling his disciples, look, I know we had a great journey. It's been a crazy adventure. I know you saw tons of cool stuff. We offended tons of people. But guess what's happening next? I am going to be gone and you cannot follow me. And then he says, don't let your hearts be troubled. And he says, I will not leave you as orphans. Well, why do you think he says, don't let your hearts be troubled? It's probably because his disciples were pretty troubled by this. Why do you say, I would not leave you as orphans? It's probably because the disciples are feeling like complete orphans. Now, we might have a hard time understanding why the disciples might feel that way. But I feel like if you're a Christian living in Iran or Iraq, you might have a better understanding of what the disciples are feeling right now. Think about the geopolitical landscape they're in right now. Okay? 
their society is reigned by the religious class, the Sadducees, the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees, in which Jesus has totally offended and now actively looking to kill Jesus and his followers. Moreover, their territory is reigned by the benevolent Roman Empire. Again, I'm being sarcastic here. The Roman Empire is one of the most ferocious, uh, terrible empires known to man. They invented, invented the cross. Jesus might as well drop his disciple in the middle of the Amazon jungle and said, see you guys later, fend for yourself, you guys will be fine. And that's what the disciples are feeling. They're basically saying, no, we won't be fine. You're leaving us as orphans. What are we going to do? Now I'm drawing attention to the urgency the disciples are feeling. Because what Jesus says next, to them it's survival. It's not just preaching on Sunday. It's survival for them. So their ears are perked up. So I'm going to ask you to do the same thing right now. I want, to, I want you to perk up your ears and listen for the first time. You might have heard this before, but listen to the first time what Jesus is going to say next. Now, I want to provide some context in this. You guys, how many of you guys own iPhones? Raise your hand. All you iPhone people, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know who you are, you Apple people. What just happened recently? iPhone just released version what? Version 25, iPhone 25, 26, what, whatever. iPhone 11, 11, thank you. <laughs> so you know what happens when they ever launch the newest gadget, right? They haul this huge press conference. They book the biggest stadium. They have all the people with their cameras and whatever. And Tim Cook goes up there and says, hey, check out this new film. Now it has four different cameras or five different cameras. And now it can do your laundry for you. And it can drive your car for you. And check this out. It's going to do everything for you at this point or something like that. So he calls, a, he calls a press conference to say, hey, here's the new version of what's happening. So imagine Jesus with his disciples. He says, okay, you guys have experienced the, the, the most recent model of the Jesus movement, movement version 1.0, okay? Version 1.0 is basically Jesus walking around with his disciples. He's the teacher. They're the disciples. The rabbi, they follow him around. They go from city to city. He preaches the gospel. He heals the sick. He casts out some demons. Every once in a while, he sends them out to do the same. And whenever they're hungry, he takes some bread, takes some fish, he multiplies it. It's a pretty cool gig, right, for the disciples. They're like, hey, we like this journey. It's pretty fun. We offended some people, but that's okay because you're still with us. We're good to go. But what Jesus is about to do, he's about to unveil version 2.0 of the Jesus movement. Because basically what he's saying is version 1.0 is not enough. Version 1.0 is not enough to do what I'm all supposed to do in this world. So he's going to unveil vision or movement 2.0. And here it is. I'm going to summarize it with two verses, John 14, 15 to 17. He says, if you love me, keep my commands, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because he neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. And then verse 14, I mean, chapter 14, verse 20, he says, and on the day you will realize that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. So summarize, version 2.0 is this. Jesus will now live in us through the Holy Spirit. Now think about that for a second. Jesus living in you. Jesus living in you. Again, we use that term all the time. But if you really think about it, it's kind of weird, right? 
a man who was born 2,000 years ago is now living in you. Like, what does that mean? Is that like an invasion of privacy here? Is kind of like living in you? Like, where does he live? Does he live in your chest cavity? Does he live in the kidneys? Does he ever go on vacations? Where does he park his car? Like, like it begs more question, right? If we think about it deeply, what does it mean for him to actually live in you? Well, again, it's a mystery. By the end of the day, it's a mystery. I get that. But there are some practical applications to him living in us. I want to break that down a little bit. Now, some people might use this phrase. You know, my, my great-grandfather who passed away now lives in me. Now, when they say that, what that meant is um, maybe their great-grandfather's teachings or their values or their memories or their stories lives in you and you're living them out. Or maybe their life mission. Or you can get really dorky and say, hey, his, his DNA lives in me, literally. And those are all kind of legitimate ways of living through someone. But for Jesus, it's that and so much more. Now, the, the number one difference is this, is that Jesus is still alive. Now, a lot of times when we pray to Jesus, a lot of times we envision like taking the old photograph of someone who's died a long time ago and like, hey, if only you were here, this would happen and so forth. But that's not the picture. Jesus is alive and he's still speaking and he's still directing He's still strategizing. He's still gathering. He's still moving. He's still shaking. He's still guiding. He's still challenging. He's still molding. He's still discipling. Guess what? He is still praying. He's still interceding on your behalf. And check it out. How And the Holy Spirit's job is to unite us with the one who is alive and speaking right now. I want to very quickly and practically mention three ways the Holy Spirit unite us with Jesus. The first one is that the Holy Spirit give us his omnipresence. And by that, I don't mean that we're omnipresent, but that Jesus is always present with us. You know, in Matthew 28, it says, and be sure of this, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. How could Jesus be with all of his followers, billions of people, all at the same time? doesn't matter where you go, what you do, doesn't matter what time you are, he will be with you. All of us at the same time, all across the world. That's because the Holy Spirit transcends space and time. And through the Holy Spirit, he can be intimate with us at all time and all places. So that's the first way we can feel the pleasure and the benefits of enjoying his company at all places, all time. The second way the Holy Spirit unites us with Jesus is that the Holy Spirit give us his gifts. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, it's the one and only spirit who distributes all these gifts. And he alone decides which gift each person should have. You know, I'm not going to go too much into the gifts. We just went through a series called Gifted. If you're interested, look back on our podcast. Uh, we, dive, we do some deep dive into the gift of Jesus. But I'm going to give you the Cliff Notes version. That's this. When Jesus ascended on high, okay, when he ascended from the dead, he gave gifts to men. And the Holy Spirit's job is to distribute these gifts and to activate these gifts in us. These gifts are not earned. You cannot buy them. You cannot beg for them. They are gifts given by the Holy Spirit. And the purpose of these gifts is to glorify Jesus. That's why he said, greater works shall you do because of the gifts he's given us through the Holy Spirit. But check this out. There's some benefits of these gifts besides just the fact that we get to use them. When we use our gifts, we enjoy deep fellowship with Jesus. 
So even when I was writing this sermon, I was at a conference. I took some time out, and I was working on the talk. And even as I'm using the creativity God's given me, the research, the study, the gifts that God's given me, I felt the presence of Jesus even sitting in the, in, in, at a desk and working on this. Yes. Why is it I feel the present tangible fellowship of Jesus? Is Check this out. It's because the same Holy Spirit that activates our gifts is the same Holy Spirit that unites us with Jesus. So connect the dots here. So when we as pastors and leaders urge you guys to discover your gifts, to use your gifts, to mold your gifts, to hone your gifts, we're not just because we need another server or we need another greeter at the door or that we just need another children worker. It's because we understand how satisfying it is to enjoy his gift and to use his gift, the sweet fellowship we feel. And we want you to feel the same thing. I'm telling you, nothing in the world is like it. No drug, no addiction can fulfill you like you using the gift that God has given you for his purpose. I'm telling you, once you experience you don't want to go back. If you have never experienced it before, please come talk to one of us. Like you're missing out. You've got to understand the sweet presence of enjoying God's gifts. So that's, that's the second way we get to enjoy God's gifts. The third way the Holy Spirit unites us with Jesus is that he gives us the mind and the, and the heart of Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 10. But it was to us that God revealed these things by his spirit. For his spirit searches out everything and show, shows us God's deep secrets. No one can know a person's thoughts except that person's own spirit. And no one can know God's thoughts except God's own spirit. And we have received God's spirit, not the world's spirit, so that we can know the wonderful things that God has given us. Through the Holy Spirit, we have access to the mind of Christ. We have access to all his knowledge, his wisdom. When we forget the things that Christ has said, the Holy Spirit will quicken in us to remind us. But to me, even more important than the mind of Christ, we have access to the heart of Christ. You ever hear people say, like, they don't really know my heart, or I, I know their heart. What does that mean? It means you know their passions, you know, you, know, you know what breaks their heart. You know what drives their emotions. That is the power of knowing someone's heart. Through the Holy Spirit, we have access to the emotions of Jesus. That to me is intimate. But check out one more thing. Through the Holy Spirit, we can have access to the secrets of God. The secrets of Jesus Christ. Now check this out. What does a secret mean? Now again, I want to... I'm talking about good secrets here. I'm not talking about like where the dead bodies bury secrets. I'm talking about good secrets. The sharing of secrets to me indicates ultimate intimacy. Ultimate intimacy. Okay. There are secrets. Just think about the secrets you have with people. Okay. There are secrets between me and my wife that no one in the world know. No one in the world should know. In fact, it would be inappropriate if you know these in on these secrets. That's how intimate these secrets are. You hear what I'm saying? And there are times in which um, my wife and I be hanging out, we hear someone say something, we see something on TV or someone preach something, and it touches, alludes to our secret, it reminds us of our secret, and I just look over to her and I just kind of nod my head and she'll blush. <laughs> it completes the this, this circle of intimacy. That's what intimacy truly means. And can you imagine the God of the universe who has knowledge of the deepest secrets of creation, 
the deepest secrets of how the world came to be, and of man and our hearts wanting to come to us and share his deepest secrets with us. That's crazy. No other religion even talk about God who is willing to do anything close to that. That's our God. And we have access to that, unity with that through the Holy Spirit. That's our access. But my question to you, how many of you desire that level of intimacy with God? To know the deep secrets of Jesus Christ. So those are tremendous benefits. Our ever-presence of Jesus Christ. Access to his gifts and access to his heart and his mind and his secrets. And these are all great things, and I can go all day talking about all the benefits and what is it like to be united with Jesus and, and yay, yay, us. But I'm not. I'm going to take a step back at this point because the truth is that it's not that simple. It's not that simple because the reality is this. We struggle with being united with Jesus. We struggle on a daily basis with being united with Jesus. I'll be remiss to mention this one crucial point. This crucial point is this. Jesus is king. And we don't understand the concept of king in America. Okay? The closest thing we have is president. And we make fun of him all the time. We don't understand what does it mean to have a king. You don't make fun of your king. You listen to your king. You, you obey your king. You let the king reign. See, when Jesus comes live in our heart, this is not a symbiotic relationship. This is not like a 50-50 partnership. This is not a corporation. He is our king. So when he comes and lives in our heart, you know what our proper response should be? John the Baptist summarized it perfectly when he says in John chapter 3, he says, He must increase, I must decrease. Now, I'm not preaching anything you don't know before. But here's the deal. How often do we actually allow that to happen? When we refuse to decrease, the Holy Spirit will withdraw from us. And next thing you know, there is no unity with Jesus. And that becomes our reality. Instead of Christ lives in us, it's just in us, or rather it's just us. And we can talk about Jesus living in me or Christ in you all day long, but when we refuse to yield the kingship to Jesus, it's just us. It sounds great to be united with Jesus. Maybe on Sunday morning, between what service we're at, second service, between 11 o'clock and 12.15, sorry. But how about being united with Jesus when you go hang out with your friends? Or united Jesus when you go watch a movie? Or united Jesus when you turn on Netflix? Or united Jesus when you surf on your phone? How about being united with Jesus when someone's tailgating you? How about uniting Jesus when your husband and your wife let you down? They disappoint you. Or when your kids act up in the middle of the grocery store? Who's reigning then? Or do you, like most of us, have an override button you're holding on to. I imagine this big red taboo-like button. Hey, Christ lives in me until something happens. You, know, you go, override, Andrew takes over now. The ring is over. The ring of terror by Andrew begins. Because my kids are acting up and they're annoying me. If we are truthful with ourselves we probably recognize there's a huge part of us that doesn't like Christ living in us. Can we be real here? So maybe we just need to modify that phrase. Instead of Christ lives in us, let's just change it. Like just between you and me, we'll change it. We'll change it to Christ visits us on Sundays. 
between church and football. And maybe on holidays. And we wonder why we're not united with Jesus. And I want to tell you this. It's okay if you feel this way. That's your reality. Because we need to start with being honest with ourselves. You know, as a scientist, we have to learn very quickly the, the concept of the limiting factor. Okay, with different reactions. You've got to find the limiting factor. It's something that keeps this reaction from going all the way. What is the limiting factor? We've got to be admit, honest with ourselves and admit the limiting factor is not the Holy Spirit. The limiting factor to us being united with Jesus is not Jesus. The limiting factor, because they want us to be united. The Holy Spirit will love for Christ to live in. That's his job. The limiting factor to us being united with Jesus is, guess what? It's ourselves. we got to come to that point in which we can point the finger to ourselves and say, I am the limiting factor. Can we just kind of repeat that just for my sake? Say, I am the limiting factor. So what do we do about this? If you guys know my preaching, I like to make it super practical. I like to talk about the change in your heart that you hate and you love at the same time. You guys know what I'm talking about? There's that thing in you that you tell everyone, it's like, I really hate this part about me. I need to stop doing it. But then you can't really stop doing it because you kind of secretly love it. Or the thing you're saying, hey, I got to get rid of this in my life. But once you know you get rid of it, you know you're going to miss it. So you don't really want to get rid of it. Therefore, you don't really get rid of it. But you keep telling people you want to get rid of it. And then you just go around that mountain over and over again. And people think, hey, man, does that guy have multiple personality? But I feel like that way sometimes. You hate it, but you love it. Then you hate it and you love it. And then you're like, what the heck do I do with my life? So what do we do? I'm here to help you. Glad you're here on the Sunday. I'm preaching to myself right now. But before we get to the most practical part. I want to bring you two truths that's going to set you free. Two simple truths that you probably know, but I'm just here to remind you. Because we need to be reminded more than we are taught. The first one is the number one function of the Holy Spirit. Guess what was the primary function of the Holy Spirit? It's to give you goosebumps. Sometimes I almost feel like that's what we think. The number one function of the Holy Ghost is to make us feel good. Or to make us sing better. Or make us preach better. To make our services better. Now God can use all those things. But that's not the number one passion of the Holy Spirit. The number one passion of the Holy Spirit is this. is to glorify Jesus. Amen. If you're ever wondering where the Holy Spirit is moving. I'll tell you right now what he's moving. He is looking to glorify Jesus. Check it out. The Holy Spirit is not it. It's not a thing. He has a personality. He can be grieved. He has motions. Do you know what he's passionate about? He's more passionate about this than any one of us. He's passionate to elevate Jesus. To bring Jesus the glory he surely deserves. That is the passion of Jesus. So we need to first realign that in our minds. The Holy Spirit's job is to glorify Jesus. And the second principle is this. How, oh, I read John 16, 14. He will glorify me because it's from me that he will receive what he will make known to you. And check out number two. How does the Holy Spirit glorify Jesus? He does this in us by killing our old self. I promise this is going to be an encouraging message at some point. Romans eight thirteen. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. See, this is good news. The good news is it is not your job to kill yourself. 
to kill your old flesh. It's not your job to kill your sinful desires. It's not your job to kill your nasty desires, your anger problem, your insecurity, uh, your laziness. You can't even do it if you want to. Trust me, I've tried. I have tried to use my own willpower, okay, my own pride to kill my own pride. Everyone else tried to do that before? I'm so good at killing myself. I'm going to kill my pride. And then once you kill it, you realize, man, another pride is taking this place. You're like, wait, I'm back to square zero, square one. This should be good news. It's not your job, nor are you in power to kill your own flesh. It's the Holy Spirit's job. And not only he's empowered to do so, he is impassioned to do so. This should be good news for us. So what do we do? What do we do? Remember those two principles. The Holy Spirit's job is to glorify Jesus through killing our flesh. So I'm going to give you three simple steps. Now you can modify these steps. These are the three steps I used to help me go through this process. Notice I said there are three simple steps. They're simple, but they're not easy. They're not complex, but they're not easy. So I'm going to show you these three steps. Hopefully this can be helpful to you. The first step. Identify the junk in your life. Identify what the Holy Spirit is trying to kill you. Just in case you need some help, I, I listed some of my own to kind of help you out. Anger, impatience, lust, selfishness, pride, insecurity, fear, anxiety, control, disobedience. Have to always be done my way. Negativity. You can go on and on and on. But lo and behold, I know the Holy Spirit is stirring that in your own heart. You know why? Because the Holy Spirit is always trying to unify, with, unify us with Jesus through killing us. So he is always stirring out junk in your own life. You know what really scares me? is when someone says, I'm good. There's nothing the Holy Spirit is working on. I'm good. Because a mature Christian is not identified by the fact that they don't need to die anymore. In fact, a mature Christian is identified by the fact that they're dying daily, maybe multiple times daily. So if you're no longer hearing the Holy Spirit saying, hey, this issue, you need this, this is separating you from Jesus, then we're in big trouble. Because he's speaking. We're just not listening. So I want to make this super practical. Even right now, I want to ask you. Just to ask the Holy Spirit, what is it in our hearts right now? In your heart right now, the Holy Spirit is trying to kill. There may be one, there might be 50 things. But just identify that thing. And here's another thing. If you refuse to listen to the Holy Spirit, often the Holy Spirit does this. He will use circumstances to remind you. So if I'm avoiding my control issues... I'm avoiding to let the Holy Spirit deal with my control issue. The Holy Spirit might flood my basement just to show me that i got to deal with that problem. Or maybe if I refuse to deal with my impatience, the Holy Spirit will use my kids to stir that issue up so I have to deal with it. We need to have the eyes to see what the Holy Spirit is doing. If you say, hey, God, where are you moving? I'll tell you right now, he's moving to glorify Jesus by killing you. Number one, we need to identify the junk in your own life. Number two. This is where it gets fun. You guys ready? Surrender your junk to the Holy Spirit. Let him kill it. I use the word surrender on purpose. 
You don't need to beg the Holy Spirit to kill it. You don't need to get on your knees and say, oh, will you, do, will you kill this thing, Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit wants to do it. I compare the Holy Spirit, this function of the Holy Spirit, to your, like, your white blood cell, your immune system, right? You don't have to beg your leukocytes or your white blood cells to go and attack the viruses and, and, and the bacteria. It will track, it's drawn to them to attack it. That's what it does. That's why your Holy Spirit is, 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 is designed, its purpose is to do this. You don't need to beg the Holy Spirit to do it. Our job is to surrender this. Our job is to not to hide our junk from the Holy Spirit. Our job is to release it into the Holy Spirit's arm. And part of surrender is this. That's what I mentioned before. It's, it's recognizing that you cannot even help the process. You don't have the education. Your mental energy is not. Your training is not enough. Your willpower is not enough. Because the key, the power to kill your flesh is the supernatural Dunamis power of the Holy Spirit to not just change your heart, but to give you a brand new heart. I want to give a side note here. Um, death hurts. Guess what? Death hurts. In fact, if you're not feeling the pain or the discomfort, I question if you actually have surrendered this to the Holy Spirit. And this should be comforting because when you are allowing the Holy Spirit to kill you, there probably should be some discomfort going on. There should be some weirdness in your heart like, ah, maybe even physical pain. I know there are times when the Holy Spirit is working in my heart, killing my control, killing the, 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 the impatience and the frustration. I literally could not eat. People be like, you're fasting. I'm like, I'm not fasting because I want to fast. I'm just not eating because I'm in so much discomfort. Yeah, growing pains, exactly. And I want to encourage you because if you are being discomforted by what the Holy Spirit is doing, you are on track for resurrection. The only thing the Holy Spirit cannot resurrect is something that refuses to die. And again, just go through all the men and women who's been used by God. When they go through their dark, I call it the basement years, it wasn't comfortable. There are parts of them that's dying, their pride, their security in themselves, their security in their ability. It's dying. It's painful. Look at David when he's hiding in the cave of Dulem. He can't eat because he's dying. The Lord is stripping them. The Holy Spirit is stripping him of his own self-identity. But when you're dying, you're due for resurrection. You've got to remember that in the midst of this or you can't stand. Which leads us to the next part. And this, to me, is the most difficult part. So you identify the junk, you surrender to the Holy Spirit, and then you take a stand, you believe, and then you wait. Step three. Many times after you surrender your junk to the Holy Spirit, you feel like nothing has happened. You still feel the same temptation, the same longings, the same desires. Your reality hasn't changed. Your mind is still jacked up. And then the next thing you know, you go back to the same filth. You go back to the same junk. You say, well, nothing's changed. I'm going back into it. This is where you need to take a stand. You know what you take a stand on? You take a stand on the firm working of the Holy Spirit. You act. You behave as if Christ is in you. You act out of that identity. You refuse to go back to the old junk. And this is where you need fellowship to take a stand. I was praying with someone this morning. And I asked them, they have a hard time taking a stand. I asked them, who's in your circle? Who are you standing with? 
It might be people in your life group. It might be people in Celebrate Recovery or maybe in the inner healing class. People will stand with you and say, hey, you are going through death right now. It's painful. But take a stand based on your new identity. We stand with you that the Holy Spirit is working. So you take a stand. The second thing you do is you believe. Now, how do I know this is of God? It's because this is based on your faith. You have to activate your faith. Once you start this process, every thought in hell is going to come in your mind saying, this is fake. This is phony. Nothing's actually happening. You're going to go back to your old ways. But this is when you realize this is not a cheap psychological trick. Okay, we're, that's the power of the Holy Spirit is not a hoax. You put your faith in the same power that resurrected Jesus. So I want to give you a hint on this. When I go through this crisis of faith, which inevitably you will go through, I ask myself this question. Do I really believe Jesus was resurrected? And I want you to ask yourself that question. Of course, when we sing those songs, we say, hey, of course Jesus was raised from the dead. But think about this. When Jesus was crucified, they had the validity that Jesus really died. Those Roman soldiers, if they actually said he died and he didn't die, guess who get crucified next? Those Roman soldiers. So they had to verify that he actually died. That's why they took the spear, remember, and poked his side to make sure he's dead. Jesus, by all verification, was truly dead, buried. And three days later, he came back to life. Do you truly believe that? Because if you truly believe that, that same power that resurrected him is working on you right now. And through this process, you get to relive your faith in Jesus once again. That the faith in Jesus' resurrection is not theoretical. It's not something you just sing about, read about. It becomes intimately personal to you because you need that power for you to move on. Does that make sense? Through this process, you get to relive your faith in Jesus once again. And I want to talk about power source real quick. People talk about power source like, yeah, how many horsepower is under that car or so forth. I want to tell you the power source that resurrects Jesus from the dead. In the Old Testament when they talk about the power of God, the reference they use is the power to part the Red Seas. Think about how many horsepower does it take to part the Red Seas. When they talk about the power of God, they talk about the power for the ten plagues to come on Egypt so that they will finally relieve the slaves, the Israelites from Egypt. How many horsepower is it to cause the ten plagues to fire far from the sky? Think about that power. How do you even measure that power? But check it out. In the New Testament, they switch paradigm. When they talk about the power of God, it's no longer a splitting the Red Sea or or the plagues. The power is this. The power to raise a man... Who has the sins of the whole entire world, even though he himself has never sinned. The weight of the sins of the whole world and the history of mankind is on him. So by that measure, he is the most sinful being ever known. Not because he sinned, but because of our sin. So he's weighed with the heaviness of sin, the pits of hell. And this power is so powerful, they raise Christ, not just from the dead, but to the right hand of the Father. How many horsepower is it that? That power source is accessible right now in you to work in you, to kill you. And if you don't truly believe that, you're going to fall back into into your lack of faith. You're going to fall back into your sin. But when you can visualize the power that's accessible for you to kill your old flesh, then you can overcome. 
So we take a stand. We believe in the power of God. And finally, we do something we all hate doing. I hate doing. And we wait. We wait on the Lord. See, we live in the microwave culture. Even though we might live in the toxic lifestyles for decades and decades, we want us to change in a moment notice. But think about it. Even Jesus had to wait. When he died, he had to wait for three days. Even he had to wait for three days. But when he was risen, he had a new body. He had a new mindset, right? How many of you guys want a new mindset? To think differently than before. Not just fighting your old mind, but you have a brand new mindset. You have new desires. How many of you don't want just to fight these old desires? You actually want brand new desires. So you don't want to go and look at the stuff you used to look at. Or or to be negative toward the things you used to have. You want brand new desires in you. New mind, a new heart. Isn't that the promise of Jesus Christ? The resurrected promise. But for most of us, we fail because our new feelings don't come quickly enough. We lose our faith and we don't let the Holy Spirit finish his work. Say if you broke your arm. You go to Dr. Brent. Dr. Brent broke my arm. Fix it for me, please. So he does his thing, performs surgery, whatever. He puts a cast on it. He says, go home, keep this cast on for the next two months. Don't, get, don't take it off. You go home and then you start feeling kind of itch. Doesn't it kind of itch when you break your arm? You're like, ah, this is itch. I can't scratch it. I really want to scratch it. And then you start to feel pain because the painkiller is wearing off. And the next thing you know, you're like, Dr. Brent, I wonder what medical school he went to. <laughs> when they operated on me, I was asleep. So was he really operating with me or is he just hanging out? And then you just, but you start having doubts come to your mind. You're like, man, is this really actually happening? I don't feel like it's happening. I don't feel like it's fixed. I don't feel like it's healing. In fact, it feels worse. So what do you do? You tear the cast off. You open up the thing. It's all bloody everywhere. It's a mess. You tear up the bones. And then it was worse than it was before. And meanwhile, you blame God. You blame your church. You blame your pastor. It's like nothing has changed. Doesn't that describe our journey? Now, a person did that. We would say, hey, stop it. Trust your doctor. Trust the surgery. Trust the cast. It's working. It's moving. But in our spiritual lives, we tear that cast off all the time. And we don't let the Holy Spirit finish His work because we don't have enough faith. I want to urge you. The church has been so weakened because we have forgot the fundamental purpose of the Holy Spirit to kill us. We want to be filled by the Holy Spirit, but we we don't want to be filled with death first so we can resurrect. I want to give you a very, very practical example of how this affects us on a day-to-day basis. I talked to my wife. She gave me permission to share the story. Um, it's funny how when you're about to preach a message, the Lord gave you tons of examples. Like, Lord, it's enough. I don't need more examples in my life. This past week, um, my wife and I and our pastoral staff went to a conference. And uh, the conference had lots of people, like a 1,000 people. And um, when there are lots of people, I get kind of um, frustrated because I don't like a lot of people. And um, the only thing worse than a lot of people is have to find someone when there's lots of people. Um, so there's a point, my wife and I are trying to find seats next to Pastor Aaron and Lauren. And I was going to the bathroom, so she was going to go with them. I said, hey, go and make sure you stand with them because I don't want to look for you. Okay. 
So I went to the bathroom, came back out, and lo and behold, my wife was gone. She couldn't find seats, so she went to find seats somewhere else. So all of a sudden, from zero to 60, my frustration level goes, So I went to try to look for my wife, and I couldn't find her. I called her, I texted her, uh, I emailed her, I did everything to her, trying to find her. I'm like, come on, like one Asian girl, how hard is it to find? Couldn't even find her. And um, I, eventually, I think Brent it's like, she's right there. I'm like, oh, you got to be kidding me. So I found her, went up to her. I'm like, dude, like, babe, I told you to stand there. Like, she's like, I'm, I'm trying to find seats for us. So I acted frustrated. I felt frustrated. So we're walking to our seats, right? So I did one of those frustrated walk, you know what I'm saying? Like, you channel all your frustration to your steps. I'm like, I'm like <laughs> right? At one point, I look back. My wife is like five steps behind me. I look at her face, and I felt the Holy Spirit said this to me. You nailed it, son. <laughs> this is exactly the stuff that Jesus will be frustrated about. I mean, the Holy Spirit is sarcastic with me. I don't know about you. He's sarcastic with me. He's like, he's like yeah, you, you, you sure act like Christ there. Good job, son. Um, of all the things I get frustrated about, that is what I would get frustrated about. And the truth is this. I knew I was acting like a three-year-old. Maybe not even a three- or two-year-old spoiled brat. I knew I was acting like a child. I knew I was acting like a brat. Everyone in the world knew that. You guys all know it now too. But I was frustrated. That was my reality. I knew I shouldn't be, but I was frustrated. What do I do? What do I do? Anyone else ever been there? You've been, you know this is yucky. You know this is icky. But you don't know what to do about it. So we had about like seven or eight seconds before we get to our seats. So I activated step one. I identified the junk in my heart. Which you can call a frustration, but really it's control. Right? I have to be in control. I need to know where my wife is. Just in case she gets lost. Even though she's a grown person. You know, whatever. It doesn't make sense. I activated my nastiness in this control. And then I release it to the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, it's your job to kill it. I can't kill it. I'm going to use my control to kill my control. It doesn't make sense. You kill the Holy Spirit. We found our seats. We sat down. And I'm telling you, my emotions did not come here. I wasn't resurrected yet. I felt every emotion of my frustration. It was as real as if someone just punched me in the face. I felt the frustration. But I took a stand. I said, that's not my identity. I don't feel the emotion, but it's going to come later. So I'm going to take a stand. So I put my arms around my wife. I say, hey, babe, I just want to explain to you. Uh, my expectation was that you wouldn't go somewhere. I don't want to look for you, but you did. So that's why I was frustrated. I'm sorry. Like, it's not a big deal. I put my arms around her. And she just said, okay, I got it. I'm sorry. I said, okay. And once I said, okay, I felt a resurrection in my heart. I felt the emotions of frustration just leave me. And then she know. I was back to normal again. And what you don't realize is a few years ago, four or five years ago, the same exact circumstance would have ruined our night. You guys ever had that happen before? Something so seemingly ridiculous. I know I could, I could see in my mind I wouldn't be able to let it go. I will hold on to it. I will make her feel terrible about it, make her feel this small. And later we have a big talk about it. Nothing gets resolved. The next day I feel like a loser. And a whole night's ruined. But because we surrender to the Holy Spirit. And because of years and years of working on this. It's not the first time this process has happened. 
years and years of learning how to die. I've learned to quickly release it to the Holy Spirit and let Him change me and not try to change myself. And for some of you, it might be similar issues or maybe much deeper issue. For some of you, you may never walk this process before. You might never experience this resurrection before. But I'm telling you, this needs to be the normal Christian life. Our life as Christian needs to be defined by death and resurrection. Death and resurrection. Because guess what? This battle is not over. This was one layer of one issue. And there are billions of issues left and billions of layers left. Check out what Paul says here. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He says, I assure you believers, by the pride which I have in you, your union with Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. I face death and die to self. See, you need to understand this. Those who enjoy the greatest unity of Jesus is defined by great death over and over and over again. They are intimate with dying. If we forget death, that's not even talk about union with Jesus. It's not even talk about Christ living in you. We have to be so familiar with the smell of death, but at the same time, the joy of resurrection. I'm trying to make this super practical for us. That's what it means for Christ to live in us. I want to remind you the power of death and the resurrection. I want to inspire you to trust the Holy Spirit to come and surrender this junk so that he may kill you so you can be raised to life again. We would love to minister and pray for you this morning. Um, Worship leaders are going to lead us in a song. Our team, please come on up. Our, Our ministry team, please come on up. I want to invite those who might have been Christians for years, maybe even decades, but you know you have stopped growing. You look back in the last couple years of your life and you see that nothing has really changed. You feel like Christ is far from you. When we talk about being united with Christ, those are just foreign concepts. There's junk in your heart that you know keeps you from being united with Jesus. And you need help. Maybe you need help with surrendering. Maybe you need help with someone standing with you. Because you have surrendered, but you have failed to take a stand and to believe. Maybe you need help with that. Whatever it is, hey, let us be empowered Christians who has Christ living in us. So that when people see you, they see Jesus, not you. That doesn't happen by accident. That happens through your daily discipline of dying. If you need help with that, please seek out help. Let us pray with you. Let us encourage you. Let us stand with you. And then there's those who have never known Christ as being intimate with Jesus. We would love to pray with you this morning. So as we sing the song, if that's you, come on up. The rest of you are dismissed for today. Have an awesome Sunday. Marriage class at 4 o'clock. But I urge you to not let this opportunity pass by. Let the Holy Spirit speak to you. Let us help you be united with Jesus. Amen.